Part 11 of John Bull's Vineyard by Hubert de Castella. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 30 Labour, Irrigation. The labour question is the all difficult one in Victoria for agriculturalists who employ hired servants. It is so easy in Australia for a good man to become his own master. Those who remain working for wages are not generally the best. No doubt there are many exceptions, faithful men who, content with the steady savings of bountiful remuneration, have at heart the interests of old employers. But as a rule, dans les champs, whoever employs labour can observe at every decade an increasing depreciation of its quality. And how could it be otherwise? The trade unions regulate the number of hours of work in the towns. Farm labourers, discontented with longer ones, make up for it by waste of time. The price and scarcity of proper labour is the stumbling block of the genteel would-be vigneron. The future development of the wine industry in Australia rests with small proprietors cultivating their vineyards themselves or with tenant vignerons of large holdings paid a fair price for the grapes they grow, the work alone of the vintage and sellers being left to the owners. Suppose in the admirably adapted ranges of Gippsland, 1,000 acres subdivided into 20 farms of 50 acres, each held in fee simple by a family cultivating 10 acres of vines and 10 acres of fruit trees, of all kinds. In that district, on soil so easy to work and to keep in good order, their vines would yield, with the owner's care, not with hireling's labour, not less than 600 gallons to the acre. Now, suppose, in sufficient proximity to these farms, a wine manufacturer with all appliances and skill, which the small vigneron cannot procure, the problem is solved. This is done to some extent in some few places in the colony. The system will extend. Victoria, by its resources, by the general wealth of the community, above all by the perfection of its climate and the absence of the destructive droughts in her sister colonies, is the paradise of the working freeholder. For he who tills his own land, there is no labour too heavy, too long or too tedious. The benefit is his, and that feeling gives him force and endurance. Ask any of these men whom you may find bent over their ground, grubbing and trenching, not one of them would exchange his lot for paid service. A man in Victoria with fifty acres of land to cultivate and a good wife and willing children for his helpmates can look forward to a life of happiness spent under conditions that ensure him health of body and independence of mind. His circumstances are such as no revolutionist, no socialist can dream of, such as not one of them can obtain. We hear much of late of three acres and a cow for a family in England, but even after they shall have got it, will the climate not be wanting to them? Can they, on these three acres, grow the fruits of all kinds which are the endowment of sunny lands? Can they, under a clouded sky and in a damp atmosphere, dry grapes, raisins, figs, apricots and peaches? Can they cultivate attar roses, rear silkworms and grow Peruvian bark? Can they, as the Victorian can do, on soil at present of moderate value, plant wattles and slow-growing cork trees for the future profits of their children? 
There is a transformation taking place in the world, of which we are only witnessing the prelude. It is to lands where all these resources are to be enjoyed and developed by families that from the less favoured countries emigration will wend its way. Through the press of all nations, exchanging informations and reports, through the instrumentality of exhibitions ever more comprehensive, people will know everywhere what they can expect to find in every clime. Shall all the comforts of life combined, security from disease, the absence of cold and of enervating heat, abundance of food and of all fruits, stability of tenure and enjoyment of liberty, not bring to Victoria's shores the influx of population she can for years absorb and for years enrich. Victoria is preparing for that influx of immigrants. Her government is now giving prominent attention to the most important source of public wealth, irrigation of lands, which combination alone can effect. Fifteen months ago, Mr A. Deakin, then Minister of Works, today Chief Secretary of Victoria, was sent to California to study the system of irrigation of that region, so similar in many points to our own. A Victorian born and working for his country, he did so like the brave man who labours for his own. He returned with full hands. The name of Victoria had opened all doors to him, placed him in communication with all talents. The result is a system of irrigation now fully organised in the colony the population being profoundly impressed with the belief that, in a land like ours, water spells wealth. Our experts, both from California and the other irrigating states of America, declare that our soil is the more fertile and our general conditions the more favourable of the two, and that the great results achieved on the Pacific Slope can be eclipsed in Victoria. The areas that will be watered by the different schemes authorised will amount to nearly a million acres. The extent of country that will be brought into profitable occupation will embrace from three to four times as much. We are laying foundations for times to come. Today the government takes the initiative. Tomorrow these waterworks will be continued and extended by the benefited populations. The first expenditure to the state will be £3 million or £4 million. Ten times that amount will probably be spent, eventually, upon all the works that are now contemplated, all self-supporting and productive of vast profits to the community. A country where such sums are to circulate in payment of labour, for one special object only, amongst a population of a million souls all told, whose total yearly revenue is upwards of £6 million sterling, cannot be a bad one for men to emigrate to. The knowledge of the cultivations best adapted to the soil and climate of the various parts of a country is an object worthy of the solicitude of its government. A Royal Commission of Vegetable Products has been established in Melbourne. It is only two months old, Yet the results of this examination of experienced agriculturalists, visitors to our colony, who gave their evidence as to what is done in lands similar to ours, is sufficient to prove the importance of that commission. It is a consultative board where authentic and trustworthy information is collected and from whence it is to be disseminated, not only in Victoria but abroad, to bring new men, new families to us. No doubt the first labours of this commission will be laid before the British public 
at the colonial exhibition among the other testimonies and proofs of Victorian prosperity. Chapter 31. Emigration. Capital. Without emigration to our lands, we cannot work our vineyards. Without money circulating freely amongst our community, we cannot expect our wines to flow merrily into the cups of our people. Such are my excuses for introducing into my light rural etude dissertations of a serious nature. When reading of the sad condition, la malaise, of the crowded populations of the old world, we are led to muse upon the thousand and one reasons militating in favour of Australia as a field for British emigration. Foremost amongst them is the comfort which every Englishman, starting for Australia, must feel in thinking that he will continue to live, as of old, in the midst of his kindred, that he is to be ruled by his own laws and protected by his own flag. Of all the British possessions, Australia is the most truly British. In any other, in India, at the Cape, even in Canada, the greater portion of the population being conquered, they remain only faithful to a strong and powerful empire. Here is an illustration. We had the other day a visit from a member of the government of the Cape of Good Hope. My father, uncles and aunts all spoke French, he told me. At the time they were children, Napoleon was expected to take possession of the Cape. My grandfather was preparing them for the change. In Australia, the backbone is British. The country has developed and been recruited from the old stock, remaining attached to it from first to last, even notwithstanding a few dissentient voices from saddened Ireland, which, if the votes were definitely put to them here, would remain with us en masse. Not only affection, but pride and interest, Two powerful agents keep the mother country and Australia bound together. Witness the outburst of feeling in favour of sending an Australian contingent to Egypt, started from amidst those who were the longest away from her, felt as a galvanic shock in all the provinces of the empire. If ever federation of that empire is established, Australia will be the strength of it. Australasia is more than 25 times the size of Great Britain and Ireland, more than three times as large as India, and only one-fifth smaller than the whole continent of Europe. The Australian group occupies nearly two-fifths of the area of the British dominions. On that territory, at the present moment, there are nearly three and a half millions of inhabitants, of whom all but 150,000 are of pure British stock and of every man of these it may be said that he is more English than the English themselves, bringing with him, as all immigrants do, the customs, habits and sports of his fatherland, rendered all the dearer by the remembrances of home. The United Kingdom is overcrowded, with 36 millions of people, of whom perhaps 2 million are struggling for a mere subsistence, which in many cases it is impossible for them to find. The policy of the home government should be to transfer this surplus population to Australia, a territory so certain to remain English. The same man, whose inability to earn a livelihood in Great Britain causes him to become a burden to the state, would, if brought to lands where his labour would be almost immediately productive, become a factor of prosperity, as well to the old as to the new country. The volume of trade between the mother country and her Australian colonies amounts, at the present moment, 
to the enormous sum of £60 million per annum. Every single individual who, from a half-starved struggling man in England, is transformed into a well-fed and well-paid colonist, contributes to the extension of this immense commerce, his purchasing power being so greatly in excess of what it would have been had he remained at home. This will be obvious enough when it is remembered that the average earnings of every member of the community in these colonies is £43 8 shillings per annum, as compared with £35 4 shillings in the United Kingdom, £27 4 shillings in the United States, and £26 18 shillings in Canada. It is not only as a field for the surplus of overcrowded home populations that Australia in general, and Victoria more particularly, are eminently fitted, but these colonies offer superior advantages and greater security for the investment of the ever-increasing capital of England than any other countries in the world. Owing to the superior facilities for the transport of the products of the soil which are now enjoyed, the land itself, at the two extremities of the same great highway of traffic, be it by land or sea, cannot remain long so disproportionate in value. Before the recent multiplication of these facilities of communication, the price of land in old Europe had reached its apogee. The retrograde movement has begun, and can only stop when something like an equilibrium shall have been established. At the time land was so dear in Europe, our fertile plains in Victoria were selling at the upset price of £1 per acre. The freight from Australia to England is now £1 per tonne per sailing ship, and £2 per steamer. An acre of ground, if it's produced equally in both countries, cannot remain worth £60 per acre in the one, and only two in the other. We read that the falling off of the total amount of sales of property in England during the last eight years, showing the diminished desire for that class of investment, is represented by the large difference between £11 million in 1877 and £4,500,000 in 1885, the decline being every year more remarkable. The reverse takes place in Australia. Sales of property in Melbourne alone would show a stupendous advance from 1877 to 1885. During that interval, suburban properties have increased tenfold. Country lands in Victoria, taken as a whole, have increased 50% in value. Therefore I contend that while there is no better outlet than Australia for the surplus population of England, there is also no better field for the safe investment of her stagnant capital. The total revenue of a country, during a period of ten years, may be accepted as a satisfactory evidence of the prosperity or otherwise of the people of that country, especially if, as in our own case, nobody feels the burden of taxation. The following figures, therefore, may be left to speak for themselves. Victoria, financial year, 1874-75, mean population, 783,274, revenue, £4,236,428, amounts per head, £5.08, financial year, 1879-80, Mean population, 840,620. Revenue, £4,621,282. Amounts per head, 
five pounds nine shillings and eleven pence. Financial year eighteen eighty four to five. Mean population nine hundred and sixty thousand and seventy nine. Revenue six million two hundred and ninety thousand three hundred and sixty one pounds. Amount per head six pounds eleven shillings. In twenty five years, even at the present rate of increase and without assisted emigration, the population of Victoria will be more than doubled, and in less than a century it is estimated that the total population of the Australian colonies will exceed 93 million. With emigration from England and with federation of the British possessions, even the present generation may witness in Australia numbering a population of 10 million of Britons, with a revenue of 50 million pounds sterling a power in men and money which will count for something in the balance of nations. Chapter 32 Taking Leave And now I must take leave of you, whoever you may be, gentle reader, who have been kind enough to follow me so far. Our grapes are ripe, our presses and vats are getting filled. I owe you much gratitude, for whilst trying to tell you of our winemaking in Australia, of our ways and difficulties, I have read and studied more books and pondered over more precepts and practices than I would have done otherwise on my own account. The result, I owe it to you, is that I have gained confidence. Pasteur's theory of the bloom ferment is still my guidance, for besides, having more faith in myself, I may attempt what a master of the arts in going through my rambling notes may reproach me with not advocating. Whilst speaking of fermentation, to aim at delicacy by reducing it as much as compatible with safety. But enough, I only mention this in anticipation of criticism. I sincerely believe that my dissertations, such as they are, may be of service to new Australian vignerons. Old ones have all by this time gained experience. I hope they will bear me out in most points. For the last three days, a motley crew has been engaged in gathering our grapes. Our vintages are not like those of France. Here we can engage no throng of children and women, young and old, no village belle on whose cheek, pink and firm, a smart young man acquires, if he succeed in crushing a purple berry on it, the traditional right to wipe it out with a kiss. Some years ago, when our neighbours, the free selectors, were fighting against time, I mean waiting until time enriched them. We had old Nicholas and his boys, and the boys of his friends, almost a troop, like the Vendangeur at home. Now they are all too well off. The fathers do not rough it any more, and the young ones are all busy with their own vintages or harvests. Today our gatherers are a curious assemblage of nationalities and characters. The pay is small, only two shillings per diem with rations, but the work is light, the food plentiful and excellent. They get four times a day a full tumbler of good wine each, and have all the while the luscious grapes to eat. Amongst those vintagers there are many hardy men who return to us every year, even from afar off, for their month of holiday, satisfied with small wages, one-fourth of what they earn at other harvests. They count the picking of grapes as a relief from heavier labour, a recruiting time for their health. 
What photo-chapters one could write of the life of some of these great pickers, poor broken-down praise of improvidence, who have seen better days, who come, with a good English accent, to ask to be put on amongst the rest. Compassion moves us, and charity brings luck. I had hoped to end my book by an appropriate peroration, but time fails me, and perhaps it is better so. I will tell you only of the alouette, the lark, the pretty bird whose nature it is to rise in the clear sky and sing, not a brilliant string of melody like the powerful nightingale, only a few notes of joy and thanks for the warmth, the light, and the bountifulness of the field it dwells upon. When the clouds gather, when the cold causes the poor bird to shiver in the wet grass, all is silent. But when the blue reappears in the sky, and the sun shines bright again, the lark, shaking its damp feathers, rises up and sings. Perhaps I have been silent as to clouded days and storms. Like La Louette, I have only repeated a song of sunny days, the most numerous in Australia, a simple and cheerful song. If my words have in them any of the truth of the bird's accents, it is because my theme has been that of a free and prosperous country, where every man gets his share of what makes life happy, his share of family joys, his share of work, and his share of hopes. End of part 11 End of John Bull's Vineyard Australian Sketches by Hubert de Castella Read by Phil Benson in Sydney, Australia